Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At age 11, Kenan Trevinchevich was a happy, karate-loving kid living with his family in the quiet eastern European town of Birchko. In the spring of 1992, war broke out, and his friends, neighbors, and teammates all turned on him. His beloved karate coach showed up at his door with an AK-47, screaming, You have one hour to leave or be killed. His only crime was he was Muslim. His new book, The Bosnia List, a memoir of war, exile, and return, Trebinchevich tells the story of his miraculous escape from the brutal ethnic cleansing campaign that swept the former Yugoslavia and of his return. After two decades in the United States, Trebinchevich honors his father's wish to visit their homeland. And he makes a list of what he wants to do there. He decides to confront his former next-door neighbor who stole from his mother, to see the concentration camp where his dad and brother were imprisoned, and to stand on the grave of his first betrayer to make sure he's really dead. Back in the land of his birth, Trevinchevich finds something more powerful and shocking than revenge. Well, Kenneth Trevinchevich will be uh, in Utah for two appearances as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. He'll discuss the Bosnia List and his experiences as a refugee on Friday, October 3rd, 7 p.m., the Salt Lake City Public Library. Then on Saturday, October 4th at 3 p.m., he'll take part in a panel discussion presented by the Bosnian-American Professionals Association and Utah Humanities Council on authors as refugees and refugees as authors. That event is also at the Salt Lake City Public Library. Kenneth Trebinchevich, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Good morning, Mr. Ernst. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you uh, for, for being with us. Very important uh, and interesting book. It's been getting a lot of buzz, and uh, you've been doing a lot of appearances. We appreciate you uh, appearing on Access Utah. I wonder if uh, if we could start uh, perhaps with uh, where, where you start in the book. It's, uh, I understand this was a uh, an essay uh, before the book uh, happened. Marshall mm-hmm. Tito in Astoria. It's very interesting. Uh, a man uh, decides to uh, t- to uh, make a, a I guess a bar and restaurant on, on a Balkan theme, and his hope is that uh, the refugees living in that area of Queens will come together. And this is this is when you're in America. This is after the war. Exactly. So you've got uh, Bosniaks, which I guess is the proper term for, for Bosnian Muslims. You've got Serbians, Croatians. And I guess at first it, it worked. People did mix. Yeah, it was meant to uh, bring different fashions together through music, food, and uh, dancing. And that was my first chance of ever entering a bar and in my native, native language ordering a drink or food. Um, and also, I never liked to go from home, and I never really talked to anyone my age from home in Bosnia at the time because I moved from Connecticut where I really didn't meet many Bosnians. And uh, within a year, uh, things started to change in the bar. A DJ changed, and <clears throat> all of a sudden, you know, big groups of Serbians started to come in flocks, and once the nationalistic sounds were shown and things, uh, songs started to play, uh, it turned into one big disaster. Mm-hmm. And the bar lasted about a year and two months, and people stabbed each other and ended up in a hospital, and the place unfortunately closed. Yeah, so in microcosm, that's, uh, that's it's sadly is what happened to your you know to, to your country. Well, it's sadly that it was actually brought over to sea, you know, 4,000, exactly 372 miles to uh, Queens, New York. Yeah, yeah, that that, that was it was sad. It's kind of a you know there there's some hope there, and I guess this guy was was hoping to bring people together, but it but it didn't work. Um, yeah, and you never know who you're gonna. There's so many people and you know, many customers who lost family members, and there's actually three fingers salute that was that was shown, and we used to see that. You know when they would and when soldiers would kill the civilians, they would throw us three fingers up as a salute of unity, and you know with alcohol and testosterone. It, Definitely pressing a certain button, and some people got really upset about it. Hmm. So, you, so you saw that in the bar, this three th- three fingers. Um, I saw it three fingers a couple of times, but not when the fight happened. I wasn't there during the fight, and actually, somebody told me. Luckily, I was at place uh, down the road. So once hmm. it happened, you know, cops came, and actually, four four people got eventually arrested. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading about how this uh, book came about. You're you're a physical therapist, right? Uh, that's what you've uh, yeah, right. ended up with, uh, healing art, and you're uh, I guess you're you're helping out a, a writer. You're, you ended up being your co-author, Susan Shapiro, with with some back problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if you tell me that story? Yeah, she. This was actually two months after my trip to Bosnia, which was in uh, July 2011. So about in September, she came to me. I remember from a few years back. And she was always grading stack of essays, always too busy to do the exercises. And one, one time I walked over and sarcastically asked if the assignment was what I did on my summer vacation. 
she laughed and said, actually, the first assignment I give to my students is to write three pages about your most humiliating secret. And I kind of looked at her and I laughed and I said, you're American, like, why would anyone reveal that? And she looked at me with a serious voice and said, well, you know, it helps you heal and editors want unusual voices. So then I emailed her to ask her how her back was feeling, because uh, she was recovering from a really serious spine injury. She sent me an article her, her female student had just published about how her mother coped with the um, suicide of her father, who was a Holocaust survivor. And that unlocked something within me. And it never really made sense of how and Bobby survived. And I never wrote anything in my life prior, you know, prior to that, other than my chemistry lab reports and bad love notes to girls. And so I gave her these three pages, and she said, well, have you ever written before? And I said, no. And she said, wow, this is like a you know, Muslim version of Anne Frank that lived through it. She said, I think you should keep writing. Why don't you take my course? So I started taking the classes, and she had, with a lot of editing changes, and um, she, yeah, she actually gave me someone's email from New York Times Magazine, and the first three pages I ever wrote got published in the Lives column and then ended up getting picked up at the uh, Best American Trial Anthology. And then when I took her um, course on how to publish the first book, um, we went around the room and we were telling me all these different agents and editors' pitches about what we wanted to write about. And at that, at that time, I wanted to write my second essay, which was about the uh, Marshall Tito, the, the, queen, the, the bar and the lounge in Queens. And editor looked at me and said, if you ever write a book, that should be your chapter, for, in the first chapter. And I thought, this is silly. I'm like, I'm not writing a book. And just to fast forward after that, I walked on you know, with her one-on-one, and, and if it wasn't for her, this book you know, wouldn't come to life. And at that, you know, as her, in her class, this is where I met the agent. And eventually, when her and I put 70 pages together, he approached an editor at Penguin. Hmm. And ever since then, we've been really inseparable. And out of that, not only have we been great coworkers, but great friends. Uh, I want to uh, take you back to Bosnia as a you know eleven and twelve year old. Uh, first, uh, just parenthetically, this this bar was called Marshall Tito, and I, I, that, uh, that produced the question. I wonder then, you know, back back in the day, um, and uh, now in the uh, I guess the community Bosnian community in in the U.S., how is Marshall Tito remembered? Because you know it was, it was after he died and the thing fell apart that the, yeah, the problem I mean, it depends, started. It depends. You ask. You know, he was a moderate, moderate um, dictator who kept the nationalists from um, you know taking the country. But but there, you know, there's so many things that. And if you ask, for example, my family, um, you know, Yugoslavia and Parsons and Yugoslav National Army was always the one big um, smoke screen for Greater Serbia. You know, Yugoslavia is always a place. Up to 1992, where Bosnia really didn't have many rights, and Bosnia really didn't exist like it did in the 11th century. So, you know, if you go back in time, not to bore you, but with you know, during the Slavian revolution and the army, there were 99 Serbian generals, but there were zero Bosniaks. Um, but you know, 198 when he died, there was never really Plan B on who was going to keep the country together, and then nationalists came to power, you know, into quarter. Mm. Uh, so, if you personally ask me, if I like Tito, I would say no, even though I was an infant when he died. Uh, but there are people who, you know, say Tito is the one. Someone like Tito should have stayed in power. So it's a mix. I, I personally don't like what Yugoslavia stood for, based yeah. on what we're seeing right now. And I guess it illustrates how, how complicated things are are in the Balkans. So. Yeah, exactly. There's so many different sides. Uh, you know, people kept changing sides the way the wind blew. Yeah. So it depends who you ask. You know, I had four family members that explained in the book that fought on three different sides in World War II. So that was really confusing to understand when I visited Bosnia. When I went to their graves, my dad was tell, my dad, and my brother would tell me the history. Of, you know how they all went on different sides and why. So it's very confusing and twisted in so many knots. So you have uh, yeah, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, um, you know, part of Yugoslavia. Bosnia, uh, I think you know is is especially complicated because you have you have all all three ethnicities, all three nationalities in in that one nation. Exactly, it's three different ethnic groups. Yep. Uh, so let's let's take you back. Um, um, you're you're eleven and twelve. What's so interesting, I think, about about this book is that you're coming to terms with the feelings you had then, and you're also experiencing what you're feeling, you know, in your thirties now, going back in in twenty eleven, and and you're you're trying to reconcile all of that, and uh, so so that's very interesting to see this through the eyes of a you know a, a young boy. Um, what, what was the first sign of trouble? 
first time in trouble was at the time when Croatia got invaded by you know Serbia, and there was a convoy of refugee, Croatian refugees that were coming through a town, and you know, I would say about Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Catholics were coming on the streets and giving out clothes to these refugees. Um, and they were sharing their stories of their rapes and dead ones, and they're telling us how we're next. And we just didn't believe, even though the capital was only across the river, because I lived our, our city of Bercicco is located right on the border of Croatia and Serbia. And interestingly, next day I remember my Serb friends who were 11 years old at the time were laughing at the whole scene, and there was a talk around town how none of them came on the streets to help, including the Yugoslav National Army, which was which had a huge base right in the center of the town. That's when I noticed the change. And also, getting I wasn't I started I started getting picked for soccer games. Uh, all these, you know, games that we used to play outside. Never really had a curfew growing up, because I never saw any sign of unrest, not even any arrests or shootings, nothing. I mean, it's a very peaceful country. And, you know, I would go outside, my friends would stop picking me for the games, or we would start playing war games, and all of a sudden, like, we would be on different sides. Oh, you Muslims are with Catholics on this side, and Serbs on this side. And then they would start to pretend to be, you know, Serbian generals at the time. So that was the first sign of trouble that I noticed was really 1991, months way before you know, war knocked on our door. Yeah. Uh, so we, we should back up a bit to describe your family, your your mom and dad. Your dad is, uh, as you describe him, a, a pretty big fish in a small tank. Uh, he he owns a, a, a sports establishment, right, a, a gym? Mm-hmm. Center, yeah, and he's a and coach for local uh, professional teams like volleyball, basketball, kayak, and all those. Boys that we play there. And you have an older brother. Older brother, six years older. He was 18 at a time, 17 at a time, and I was 11. Um, <clears throat> and he helped my dad at, at the fitness center. He was also a karate loving teenager. Yeah, he's 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 tall and blonde. I think you're you're a little bit shorter and, and dark. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, yep. Uh, so um, it's it, it must have been just so confusing for for a kid your age you know 12 years old um when people that you had thought of as friends just basically turned on you i wonder maybe first you could uh, talk about your your karate coach this this must have been so hurtful well, this, you, you it, idolized him now when, I, when i went back there at 11 you know the whole point of the story we had two commitments two shifting stories that alternate stories that went through time so i had to relive all those moments but this time makes sense i'm as a result as an adult and really understand that, you know, this really didn't come overnight, now when I think about it. To me, as a 11-year-old, I thought, well, wow, man, these are the people that we spend birthdays with, holidays with. Uh, these are my classmates. And one day, I, you know, when the war started, I go across the street to buy a loaf of bread. Because I was the only one that was allowed to really go outside. So my dad was under <clears throat> over 18 years of age, and so he became occupied. And my teacher saw me in the street, and he, you know, he decided to hold a gun to my head and rifle to my head and call me a... Uh, derogatory term for, you know, Bosnian Muslims. And then karate coach, a week later, comes to our door with his angry army unit and shouting, you know, we have an hour till we will be killed. And, you know, obviously it was shocking to me how could we do, to, you know, how could he do this to us? And I thought at first it was personal, you know, did, did I do something wrong? Did my family do something wrong? Uh, but when I went back, actually, <clears throat> and talked to my brother about it, my brother said, well, you know, everyone else in town, it's not surprising Terrell, who's my karate coach, that he turned that way. Because right before the war started, he started <clears throat> doing these weekend trips to Croatia. And later on, we found out that he was, you know, one of those so-called weekend warriors where he would go to Croatia with Serbian forces and he would loot money and he would come back <clears throat> to Bridgeco. And then when the war started, he was you know, one of the big fish in town with local uh, truants. And a lot of the local kids who were up like troublemakers who really had low self-esteem and felt <clears throat> like a second-class citizens, even though they were treated great by everyone else. You know, they, they're the ones that did the worst you know, atrocities. So uh, you you came to understand that, that uh, I guess the war brings out best and worst in people. And and your your karate coach Pedro, uh, you I guess you came to understand that he, uh, you know, he he had some he had some bad in him that you didn't see as eleven year old boy. Um, for example, he decided to smash fellow karate uh, martial artist's hands with a hammer with one of the local actually world criminals who actually saved my dad in a concentration camp, but while killing his friends, um, you know, he they smashed his hand at the police station. And he was really jealous of him, and you know, this other guy had 
you know, pretty girls, and he was popular in town. And Pharaoh first went after everyone that had um, lots of money, and you know the ones he was like jealous of, who he uh, uh, resented. Hmm. And I was, I mean, I was surprised that he didn't really go after my dad in, in worse ways than that, or my brother, because my dad did own a business, hmm. and. You know, <clears throat> later on, and like I said earlier, later on, my final book here was really doing even with the war that was happening in Croatia. And then he changed. He decided to, you know, leave the karate club. He started to come to practice really late, unshaven. He wouldn't wash his hair. He would get drunk. <clears throat> and I would always wonder, what's wrong with Sarah? Like, he's supposed to be here practicing, but he's late. So, you know, all those changes were there. But as an 11-year-old, you understand. And my brother always tells me, listen, you're 11 years old. I was the one who was 17, 18, going to town. To bars, and I saw how he was acting, and people knew, knew he changed, and he even killed somebody two weeks before the war started. But I didn't know he was 11 years old. You know, I saw him as my hero, someone I was looking up to. Yeah, that must have been especially painful. You're seeing it through the eyes of an 11-year-old boy. You were telling the story before about another teacher, Milutin. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. So he actually points his AK-47 at you. I don't know, did he did he try to shoot? You say the gun jammed. He told, he was pressing the button, I heard, you know, not, not like a click, but I heard like a jamming uh, sound, and he looked at his comrade, and he, and he you know, he, he threw an F-bomb, and he said, oh, you know, the damn thing jammed. Hmm. And, you know, and I tugged away, and I picked up a loaf of bread off from the ground that he knocked out of my hand. And as I ran away, he was sitting there laughing, and when I turned around, he lifted his, you know, three fingers salute into the air, which stands for, like, Serginity. Um, and I never told my mom, I, I never told anyone until after I wrote, you know, until the book was pretty much published. And I remember my brother was reading it. He said, I'm coming right over, and I knew why. And he, he only was a block away from me. And he pulled into my door. This was like a few years last year. And he said, what the hell? You know, you didn't tell me about this. So I said, well, you know, if I told you guys a lot of stuff, you wouldn't let me go outside and get family and bread and, you know, yeah. all those small things that wow. were left in stores. So I really, you know, I really didn't share that story with my, uh, with my, uh, my parents at the time. My mom would have had a heart attack. Hmm. Uh, and you write about this, this man. Everything he'd ever taught me about brotherhood and unity was a lie. Yeah, I have a picture of the great quote. I have a picture from first grade. It, it, it was taken in celebration of 1986, the probably a holiday where teacher Milton made our class pledge that we should always protect and defend the brotherhood for which Tito fought for, and he took that to, he took took us to the military garrison, where we, you know, put our hands on our chest, and we swore, whatnot, and I remember when I found his picture, when I was putting the book together with Susan, I remember the story where on the way to school, my dad looked at me and said, when you have the picture taken, take the thing, take the thing off your head, meaning my hat, which, which was a traditional blue partisan hat, wearing a red star and a red handkerchief. And it really represents Tito's partisans, you know, revolutionaries. And I said, why? I was kids are wearing it, too. And he said, just please take it off when you wear a hat, when you take a picture. You know, you're too young to understand to do what I'm telling you. So I, in the picture, actually, I'm sitting in the fifth row, I mean, in the last row, fifth to my teacher Milton's left, and I'm not wearing the uh, traditional clothing. I'm just wearing a regular sweater. And I remember that story when I actually found the picture years later. So now I know what my dad meant. Hmm. And well, you know, Milton te- teaching the and preach, which obviously contradicts what he did to me uh, in May of 1992, right? Yeah. Uh, if you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Kenan Trebinjevich. Uh, he, as a young boy in Bosnia, 1992, he's uh, 11 years old. Uh, he, he he can't understand why everybody's turning on him and his family. It's it's because they're Muslim, and of course. Uh, the horrible genocide has begun. Uh, eventually, 300,000 people will die. Uh, and uh, The Bosnia List is his book. It's a memoir of war, exile, and return. Years later, in 2011, at his father's insistence, he and his father and brother returned to Bosnia. Um, but I think his uh, brother and father have, you know, they have their own agendas. Uh, Kenan Trebinchevich's agenda involves uh, some revenge fantasies, or at least confronting people who uh, who did their family wrong, turned from one day to the next, it seemed, from friend to foe, uh, and uh, 
This book is about what happened, flashbacks to that time, that horrible time in uh, Bosnia, and what happened on that return trip. We're going to take a break when we come back more with Kenan Trebinchevich and the Bosnia List. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University homecoming football game versus Air Force. Saturday, October 11th at Romney Stadium. Ticket details at usu.edu slash homecoming. And also by Crumb Brothers artisan Brad and Logan. Open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m., a wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries using old-world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at crumbbrothers.com. Hey there, it's Bill McLaughlin, and I've been loose in the library again, tracking down string quartets by men and women who were born in the 1850s and 60s. Some very well-known and beloved, like quartets of Debussy and Sibelius, but some wonderful, rarely heard gems from Edward Elgar, Amy Beach, and a lot more. So come explore string quartets with us this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Kenan Trevinchevich. Uh, he is uh, from Bosnia. He grew up uh, as a happy, karate-loving kid with his family in the quiet eastern European town of Birchko. It's uh, uh, up in uh, northeastern Bosnia, I think, Kenan Trevinchevich. It's near the borders with Serbia and uh, Croatia. And uh, life was good until about 1991, 1992, war broke out. Friends, neighbors, and teammates all turned on him and his family. Uh, one example we've been talking about, his beloved karate coach, who he idolized, showed up at his door with an AK-47 screaming, you have one hour to leave or be killed. Other instances, his only crime was that he was Muslim. And his new book, The Bosnia List, tells that story. Also the story of their miraculous escape, his families. They ended up in Connecticut. Um, and uh, Kenneth Trebinchevich uh, now lives in New York City. He's a physical therapist there. His book is The Bosnia List, a uh, memoir of war, exile, and return. Uh, I want to uh, maybe begin this uh, segment of the program uh, with this. I'll just read you the short passage from your book, this is page 6 and 7. Uh, this is in the chapter Marshall Tito in the Astoria. Astoria, by the way, is, is a, a section of Queens, right? Which you say Queens is uh, the most, uh, what would you say, integrated uh, borough in New York. Uh, yeah, it's lot, the most, uh, and again, it's actually the most diverse uh, neighborhood in the entire world. Yeah, there's a whole segment yeah. on actually National Geographic Channel. I mean, you, you go outside here, learn all different languages of uh, all over the corners of the world. Yeah, and including including from Balkan nations, and so that's uh, so you 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 had. And we talked about this this nightclub that this guy uh, set up. That he had this dream that uh, that in this country in America that. Uh, that Bosniaks and uh, Serbs and Croatians would all come together. That uh, that dream, uh, you know, blew up essentially. So you write. Uh, so I'd never. So I was twelve when my family was forced into exile. So I'd never kissed a girl from home. I'd never danced to Bosnian music in a nightclub before. I'd never walked into a bar and ordered a beer in my own tongue. All the normal teenage highlights were postponed and experienced late in a different language through a foreigner's eye. At Marshall's, I felt like I was traveling back in time to a life I'd uh, never got to live, but desperately wanted to to reclaim. That's uh, I think that's a that's a very good uh, view, you know, through the eyes of, of of a refugee. You're you're sort of between countries at a certain time. You, uh, later on, you became a uh, citizen of the the U.S., and I think you you embraced that. But there's a longing for for what you lost. Exactly. I I, uh, I wanted to have do right. Which I have right now, uh, but at the time I didn't because you know, again when I moved from Connecticut to New York City, the first uh, time I actually walked into. Oh, can I can I interrupt you? Uh, you you're uh, you're uh, br- breaking up a little bit. I wonder maybe you could put the telephone a little closer to your mouth or something. Uh, I, I okay, couldn't sorry. understand. Yeah, there you go. No, I, I wanted to have the experience of having a dual life where I can still preserve my cultural heritage. I'm very you know I'm very proud to be about the Muslim, but I'm very privileged to be you know American citizens because here. Where friends, colleagues, and mentors have been sensitive to my past and supported me, and I um, enjoy the liberties that you get to live as an American, and I consider myself American as well. Uh, but when I first time walked into the bar, you know, seeing people eating the Bosnian food, which I never ordered before in the bar, having ordering beer in Bosnia, and seeing you know pretty Balkan girls, I never got to experience that. 
And here, here it goes. There was a chance of me actually having two lives and being able to detach whenever I detach whenever I want to. And I felt that once the trouble started to arise in the bar, I felt like I was experiencing the same thing I was experiencing in 1992. And I felt like the 11-year-old boy was losing uh, my childhood, even though I was 30 at the time. Mm. So the memory started to come back and resentment. And I felt like a refugee, actually. In my, I felt like a refugee in as a refugee. And then that, that feeling actually came back, and it was horrible. Tell me about the feelings through the eyes of an 11-year-old boy. Of course, confusion. you got to be confused. I guess hurt, angry, um, to, to the point where, as you say, as, the, as your father wants to go back, he, he's worried about getting too old to go back, and he wants to go back and at least visit. Uh, so your agenda includes, you know, revenge fantasies. I, I think at a certain point you you tell someone else this, and and they, they told you, oh yes, you know, everyone who goes back uh, has these these fantasies. Uh, we you know we just got to sort of work through them. Yeah, my dad. After twenty two decades in America, he definitely wanted to visit our hometown again, saying, "Oh, I'm getting older. I never get to see my you know friends and little family that we have left." So my brother and I agreed to take him, and at first we felt that we were only doing this for him, but I realized I had to sit down and face my past. So while well, most 30-year-olds spent their vacations um, visiting museums and doing romance, I decided that I was going to spend mine visiting cemeteries graveyards. And on my, out of 12 things on the list, I was in visiting places that played significance in my life. I wanted to confront any of the neighbors and friends who uh, betrayed us. And one of them actually was, since it was really convenient, was to confront the next-door neighbor who stole from other. Uh, yeah, she's, she's she, number one uh, on your list, I think. Yeah, she she was the first one that I... She lived next door to us. So as one of the started, the first day, she came over barging in as if she owned our apartment. And she would tell us how Muslim and Catholics were going to be defeated and we're going to become Serbians, and she would just take stuff from my mom in exchange of not giving up my dad and my brother. Hmm. Uh, jewelry, any of the furniture she wanted, uh, she could have had. She, told, she took my mom's nightgown, and, you know, I wanted to confront her and look for my mom's stuff, actually take it back. Yeah, that was actually and, your, your plan. You're going to confront her and take the stuff back. Yeah, that was my, that was my 11-year-old's uh, mind. Yeah, I wanted revenge because yeah. I felt, you know, the war ended. You know, I have more power. I have the same or more, even more power than they do. Based on where I live now, I can do whatever I want, and I, can, I like to avenge my mom. And also, if I run into, into any of my other friends, you know, I definitely have physical fantasies of what I want to do. And I brought this up to my neighbor in Queens, and he said, "Our January," and he said, "Everyone go over together and go first time." More than that, more than you're, uh, uh, excuse me, sorry, uh, you're, you're cutting out again. I wonder, I, I don't know, uh, you put the phone closer? No, I, maybe, yeah. I'm talking to the phone. Okay. So when I talked to my neighbor about it, he said, oh, don't worry, everyone goes through those fantasies. It's going to be okay. Wherever you're feeling, it's totally normal. He said, mm-hmm. when you go back the first time, that's what occurs in your head and your mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess this number one on your list, I, I could guess, because it involved your, your mother. Your, exactly. The, yeah. your, the so Petra hurt your mother. Yeah, mom. yeah. So what happened when you confronted uh, Petra? Uh, when I actually, two times I ran for her. I ran for her first time in the stairs when she was walking upstairs and she saw me. She got really nervous and she put her, you know, groceries down. And when she came to the door shaking, looking, taking the keys out of her bag, I looked at her and I said, and no one has forgotten. And she just released his sigh and closed the door. Hmm. Next time I decided against my brother's wish to talk to her about it. And my brother said, you're going to cause a chaos, so you're going to get arrested. Like, well, don't do this. I said, I really need to do this. So I walked into the apartment, actually. I wanted to say hi to her. And it's a fast-forward story. She was out getting a haircut and on. I was talking to her daughter. And she came in, and she had this conversation with us as, as if she did nothing wrong to my mom and to us. And I was so confused because I thought, wow, everyone here has this collective amnesia. They totally forgot what they've done. Either she had 20 years to change the history, or 20 year, 20 minutes from the time she found out we were coming when she was getting her hair uh, blown dry to change the story. She started saying, wow, how could those monsters do that to you? She said, I wouldn't, I, I didn't even ask her anything. She just talked. She said, I will never steal things from your mom. Your mom gave me 
those things to hold on to until you guys came back. I never took the best sheets. I never took the paintings against your mom's will. Your mom came over and gave them to me. And I sat there, and I don't know how to feel. I was angry and wanted to laugh at the same time because I was not in the diapers not to remember that she would barge in and demand things from my mom. Jewelry, not to give my 18-year-old brother away. She would go outside and point out where all the vacant Catholic, I mean, the cross and Bosnian homes are, so the looting soldiers would go in and take stuff. And what was really intriguing was the fact that she is sad that she doesn't have the old neighbors. She doesn't like the old, the new neighbors who moved in. She doesn't like the music they played. She doesn't like the fact that they come from very rural mountains areas. You know, a lot of Serbs populated Bridgeco from everyone else. And she feels terrible and sad that she came to walk across the street and run into a familiar face, which she used to when she was, you know, 20 years ago. And she kept saying, oh, the only person in the building is the Bosnian doctor upstairs, and we love him. He's so respectful. He's a gentleman. And she even brings her grandson to a Bosnian doctor, my old uh, pediatrician. So, you, so it, it sounds like you didn't get out of that what you had hoped for. You, you, I think you wanted acknowledgement, right? But you didn't. You didn't get that. I want acknowledgement, and you know, she never. You know, and, you know, do I think she felt guilty, or I, I think she felt remorseful? What What happened to her that she lost great neighbors, uh, but she didn't take. She didn't personally admit that she did anything wrong to my mom. Of course, you know, when I walked in there, I looked for my mom belongings. I did, you know, I didn't find any. Uh, we know that she did take him because her apartment used to be used to be stacked with our neighbors' uh, belongings. But I did get a sense of revenge because she, they get to live in the place that they, they created for themselves. She does not enjoy her life. She, you know, time has not been good to her. She's aged. Uh, she's younger than my dad, but she looks way older than my dad. And you know, she really doesn't have friends. You know, she she has neighbors that she really doesn't like. Um, politicians who make their lives miserable. So. You know, I have a better life in America than I would have if I stayed. And I think now, you know, they're going to have a hard time for us to life, harder time than I had during the war. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Kenan Trebinchevich. He is, as a young man in uh, Bosnia, grew up in the town of Birchko in uh, Bosnia. When the war came to his town in uh, 1992, uh, people he thought were friends turned on him. And he learned that uh, war brings out the best and worst in people. Um, and uh, so when they went back to Bosnia after uh, after 20 years in uh, 2011, his father wants to go back. Uh, he goes back with his father and brother. They have their agenda, which is visiting places. He has revenge fantasies, and uh, he has a list, in fact, the Bosnia list, the title list, which includes standing on the grave of his karate coach who betrayed him, just to make sure he's uh, really dead, confronting this neighbor who stole from his mother. We've been just talking about that, uh, Petra. And uh, and some other things, um, but uh, things changed. And I'll uh, we'll, as we go along, we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, what he came away with with this. We're talking about with uh, Kenneth Trebinchevich. Uh, let me tell you uh, his appearances in Utah. He's coming to Utah as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Uh, a couple of appearances next week. He'll discuss the Bosnia list and his experiences as a refugee on Friday, October third, seven p.m. at the Salt Lake City Public Library. Then on Saturday, October fourth, at three p.m., he'll take part in a panel discussion presented by the Bosnian American Professionals Association and Utah Humanities Council on authors as refugees and refugees as authors. That event is also at the Salt Lake City uh, Public Library. So, uh, Kenneth um I, it's interesting to me that that. Throughout your your trip to to Bosnia, and I'm sure, uh, you know, daily, you, you've got your mother's voice in your head. The things that she was teaching mm-hmm. you, and she uh, she seems like a very admirable woman. Uh, she was teaching you, I guess, uh, not to give in to bitterness. You know, to to look forward, and I guess that had an influence on you. I wonder if you could talk about that, especially as you had this experience back in Bosnia. In, in 2011, you you uncovered some things you hadn't known before, and and uh, saw some things you didn't see as an 11 year old boy. Yeah, she, uh, well, I remember like during the war, even a few times I would go out with my dad, and most of the times I would go alone, and I would get turned down, you know, for a loaf of bread, or I would I would be told to stay in a separate line. And these were my dad's former classmates and friends, and I would come home screaming to my mom, you know, I hate all the Serbs, I want them all. You know, dad, and she would get mad at me and said, 
you know, I didn't teach you to be that way. Don't give in. Don't be like them. And, you know, you should always never forgive or forget those who did us harm, but you should always remember the good people, too. And she even told me, told me this in 1995. And one of her favorite movies was Schindler's List. And I used to get annoyed all the time as a 12-year-old and 13, I mean, I'm sorry, 14-year-old in Connecticut. And I would say, what do Jews and Wolves have to do with us in 1992? And she said, well, you're too young to understand you know, but this is, you know, our story. Just remember, there were good people that have helped us, and also good deeds from even bad people. And when we were writing the story together, uh, Susan and I, my co-author, you know, she said, well, think about all the people that have helped you. And I said, well, I can probably count them on one finger. And then I really thought about it. We realized the process of writing, there were actually 12 people who helped us or saved us in any way. Uh, for example... Next door neighbor's husband, Petra's, right? Her husband, he was a guard in the concentration camp. And second day of the war, my dad wanted to go outside and check on his office and our neighbor's office. And my dad wanted to accompany him, and he told my dad, I mean, he knew what was going on, and he told my dad, don't go anywhere, stay indoors, don't be crazy. And the place that they wanted to go was the partisan sports hall where I studied karate. And that's, that place turned into a, pretty much a slaughterhouse. Mm. You know, so Auburn, you know, even though he was a Serb soldier, he stayed in, uh, in, at that time. There's also a Serb family that I ended up visiting on my trip to Bosnia who moved in below us, who took my Bosnian friend's apartment. And he was a Serb soldier who, at night, would fill out a propane gas tank and bring us food while he fought in the Serb army, and his wife would come up and bring my mom coffee and, you know, whatever her kids ate, we ate. And I was very confused at 11-year-old because here I'm there, knowing that this guy is probably shooting at my cousin who's fighting on the other side, but yeah, he's helping us. And, you know, this seems an enemy. So when I went to the house in 2011, when he gave me this, you know, warm hug when I first saw him for the first time after two decades, I felt... You know, I didn't reciprocate a nice hug because in my eyes I was still 11 and he was a you know, served soldier. But this time he wore civilian clothing. You know, he was much older. So it was really interesting seeing, you know, talking to them about it in their house having lunch because I wanted to thank them, you know, what they've done for us. Uh, because if it wasn't for them, we probably would have starved. They gave us money, enough money to leave, um, you know, Bridgeco and actually settle you know, in Vienna. And... Uh, and there were a couple other people that were actually, when we left on the sixth time, sixth drive to Bosnia, because we tried leaving, leaving six times, there was a bus driver who wrote our last name, not mentioning my dad's first name, at the checkpoint. Usually soldiers would come in, and when they read the last name, right away they know if there's a Muslim or Catholic in there, and they would throw them out like they'd done in the past. Uh, but one of the first checkpoints, somebody walked in, and one of the guards and said, do I need to worry about anyone here, meaning uh, you know Muslims? And the guy said, no, nobody here. And, you know, the guy saved us at that checkpoint, basically, and then he waited for us at the other checkpoint when we were kicked out. He waited a good amount of time for us um, in a blizzard to uh, take us to in Austria. And most importantly, recently, I've gotten in touch with Pera, a good Pera, which I call him, a, a Serb captain who was in charge of police station in Bertico during the war, who helped us leave the last time by get, writing our paperwork and updating the passports, which really, Yugoslavians, which really didn't exist anymore, and he actually made personal phone calls to border to have us um, allowed to leave, even though he was screened at. So I heard the whole process about that. He, uh, last November, when I contacted him through Skype, he now lives in Vienna. Again, I wanted to thank him for saying my dad and my brother um, and getting him out of the second concentration camp at one point in time, which I write about in the book, when they were taking on the bus and making a bus wait for them. And also to mention that, I, that he's written about in the book, but I didn't include his last name. Uh, well, if you just joined us, we're uh, talking with uh, uh, Kenneth Trevinchevich. His new book is The Bosnia List, a memoir of war, exile, and return. 1992, the uh, Bosnian War uh, came to his uh, town, Birchko, in uh, northeastern uh, Bosnia. And uh, friends, uh, who he thought were friends, and neighbors, teammates, teachers, all turned on him because he was Muslim. And, of course... Uh, that was the beginning, and uh, it continued uh, until 300,000 people died, a horrible genocide. Uh, the family ends up in Connecticut, and so there's a dual track here, remembering that 11-year-old boy that he was, the feelings that he had, and then a 2011 trip back to Bosnia, 
these revenge fantasies and some scores he wants to settle and confronting some people. Uh, and uh, but he but he found, uh, as we've been talking about, uh, some knowledge. With his mother's voice in his head, he he discovers uh, some things, uh, some positive things. People who helped him. Uh, we're going to talk more about this. Our final segment coming up following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Special Collections and Archives, Merrill Casier Library presenting the 20th Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Thursday, October 2nd, at 7 at the Logan Tabernacle. Area college students can win cash prizes by writing an essay related to the lecture. Information at 797-2663. Hi, this is Helen Forster from E-Town. We've got one of our favorite guys on the planet, great musician too, Dave Alvin with us, plus fast-rising, talented newcomer Max Gomez, and an Achievement Award story I think you're really going to love. That's all this week in E-Town. Saturday evening at 5 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Kenan Trevinchovitz. He's written a very interesting new memoir. It's called uh, The Bosnia List. And uh, he takes dual track, two stories in the book. As an 11-year-old boy, he's uh, confused, angered, uh, all the emotions you would imagine uh, as uh, teachers, neighbors, friends turn on him in 1992 in the uh, Bosnian War, seemingly one day to the next. Um, he, he has to process that. The family has a miraculous escape, uh, ends up in Connecticut, and um, he and his uh, mother and father and an older brother have to adjust to a new life as refugees in, in America. Eventually becomes an American citizen, and in 2011 he goes back with his brother and father to Bosnia. And he has a list of things he's going to do when he's there, including stand on the grave of his beloved karate coach who turned on him to see if he's really dead, uh, confront uh, this neighbor who who hurt his uh, mother, and uh, and so forth and so on. At the end of the book, there's a new Bosnia list. has 12 items as well, and uh, it's, it's more a list of gratitude for the people who, who helped him. That's one of the things that happened when he went back. He was able to realize these things. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, uh, Kenneth Trebinchevich. Uh, this is in the middle of what ended up being 300,000 people dead, horrible genocide. Uh, I don't know, maybe to begin this segment, uh, how do you process that? How do you how do you even think about that? We all have to think about that because it's it's about humanity, but your, you know, your family miraculously escaped this. And I'm sure you had, you know, uh, people that you knew who who died. Yeah, we you know uh, so many people that lost love on the bottom themselves. Um, as when I went back, my dad and my brother, we wanted to pay a set for the falling man. My dad and mom inside and walking through. Oh, excuse uh, me. Uh, sorry, you're you're cutting out again. I wonder if you could adjust the phone. I'm sorry. Yeah. When I went back in 2011 with my father and dad, one of the traditions is to visit a local uh, cemetery where Bosnian Army men were you know, buried. And just walking through the aisles, I was able to count. I remember 99 people my dad knew um, through athletics, um, co-workers, you know, schoolmates, including my brother who knew a lot of his classmates and at that point in time you know you sit down and I look around and I said wow I'm like wow at first I felt like a young victim who young, that young child who lost his happy childhood I came to understand how lucky and how amazing lucky we were to be stuck there for nine months and not um, you know die or have them lost in a concentration camp for example and you're know, trying to make out of thin, make sense out of things that why did that war criminal carries my dad dad's life and gives him coffee while he, you know, takes lives of his, you know, my dad's classmates and friends and rapes his wife, you know, their wives. So it's, tough to, it's tough to process that, you know, why, why was my dad different from anyone else at the time? You know, what saved us? You know, is it luck, divine intervention, or perseverance? And going back in time also, understanding who these people really were before the war, uh, I came to realize that war allowed them to be who they really are because in time of peace, they really couldn't be themselves. And like you said earlier, the war brings best and worst out of people. Um, you know, so you try to lean more towards the positive side and take some positive things that came out of it. Hmm. One of you the... Change, you can't change the past. Yeah. You can't dwell on it for so long. And I 
you know, I, so I wanted to be a, my generation voice to, to say, well, you know, it's okay to talk about it. It's, it's okay to relive it. Because each time when you relive it, you actually process it and make, things, make sense out of things. So this has helped to heal? Has it been a healing process writing this book? Oh, it's by far. My co-author always uses a, a famous quote, you know, write, I, write, I write the final what I'm thinking, and for me it became really true. And at times I felt like a young mouse, like a mouse lost in a maze, where every time I found another passage, one more roadblock, I had to find my way around. And, you know, and I've done that with the book, and it's towards the end. Is this, um, in the end, is this a book about forgiveness? Have, have you forgiven uh, people? No. No, we, what we did was, we got a little confused. I think we confused, it's very hard to process it. Um, if a, when Americans read it, they think it's a um, book of forgiveness. I think it's also like a Christian thing, because that's how, you know, you want to understand things. You know, if you're able to go through it, it means you have forgiven. Um, I've forgiven myself for having a better life than I would have had in Bosnia. I've forgiven my mom for being sick for 13 years. I've forgiven my dad for not getting a side in town. Uh, but I can never, you know, you can never forgive the genocide or murders and all those crimes that were done, you know, by our neighbors. And uh, you know, we use one of the one of the famous uh, short stories. It's 1937, and dreams that give uh, forgiveness. And the real stories in, in dreams, uh, in dreams, become uh, a responsibility. And I think with that, Tyler and the end, we confused a uh, few people because, you know, if I didn't come come out of Bosnia revenging or hurting someone physically, you would think that I have forgiven. I think it's more the fact that I went through like a moral transformation than anything. A, a moral transformation. Uh, t- tell me about that. What what kind of moral transformation? Uh, for example, acknowledging first of all that there were good Serbs that helped us. Uh, the war wasn't black and white, like I thought it was when I was 11 years old, and I'm really just thankful to also get an opportunity to come to space and give it a new life. Uh, I would not have the job and life I have in Bosnia, the one I have here in America. I mean, here, you know, the only thing that matters is your hard work. My boss doesn't ask me what holidays I celebrate. He doesn't ask me whether I pray or not. He doesn't um, give or not give me responsibility and jobs based on, based on my religion. I'm very happy where I am right now, and again, I'm I'm happy to be American citizen and have a dual life where I can have two lives and one I can detach from, and you know, be able to go back and say, wow, you know, we survived for nine months, and there were actually people that we are indebted to for our life who have saved us. So you know, I couldn't hate everyone like I did when I went back, you know, in 2011. Yeah, it does sound that's, like that's you. That's my uh, you know moral transformation. It does sound like you have a good life uh, here. You do physical therapist, and uh, you you know embrace your American citizenship and 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 your you sure. know Bosnian uh, ethnicity. I want to ask you about um, you, you wrote a, a piece around the time of the Boston bombings, which is very interesting to me. It kind of illustrates the feelings that uh, Muslim Americans have uh, when when the Boston bombings happened. I think you write that you called your brother, or your brother called you, and said, "Well, I hope." I hope whoever did this is not Muslim. Then you find out they they are. They were. Yeah, when I heard it happen, I I said, "Oh, here we go again." And I remember my college roommate called me, and he always jokes around me, and he he goes, "You know, please tell your people to stop blowing things up." And you know, and I said, "Oh boy." So I sat down with my co-author, and I said, "Well, you know, I wanted to write about this because you know both." Sarnay's brothers and my brother and I come from war-torn countries, you know, Eastern Europe. And the question is, where have our roads diverged for them to do such horrible things? And, and I realized by writing, it came down to family and community. Um, you know, throughout the war, my family stayed close uh, together. My mom always preached me not, not to hate, to be a good person. And first thing she did when she came to America, she said, you know, we're here for you boys. My, your dad and I are here. Uh, we're going to be nobodies for you guys to become somebody someday. We're going to work in the factories. We're not going to have jobs we had in Bosnia. I'm going to clean houses but for you guys go to school and make something out of yourselves because you have no future in Bosnia or anywhere else in Europe. You know, some Americans have helped us to come here, take advantage of it, don't ruin it. And you know, I went back and studied what some of family went through. Um, I, 
I vaguely remember he was 19 and his parents, his mom went, went back to, um, I think, Chechnya. Um, and it was really odd that, you know, his parents would leave a 19-year-old. They also hung out in immigrant-only community in Massachusetts. And when I came here, I went, you know, I went to Connecticut. And not to say that, you know, hanging out with immigrants would lead you to a negative life. However, I embraced other cultures. You know, I celebrated other holidays with my friends. Um, I had teachers, mentors who helped me in school with homework. They would stop me, meal the whole and ask me to, you know, if I needed anything. I don't know if this was the case with him. And also, oldest son, uh, his, his dreams of Olympic, his Olympic dream went down a drain when he realized that he couldn't box for uh, US Olympic team. And he took that in a very negative way. And, you know, turn that around and blame Americans for that. And what I did with my sports passion, which was karate and soccer and basketball, is I turned it into a job where I work as a physical therapist. I could still be involved in that community, but I can have others from injuries. So there's a lot of bitterness on his end <clears throat> and uh, who he hung out with. And we had, when we came here, Interfaith Council of Churches and Synagogues, which found us to Connecticut, <clears throat> and they checked up on us. We went to different events. They helped us really integrate into community which I don't believe happened in son and brother's case, and it's maybe something that um, these organizations can look into when they bring these immigrants from other countries, especially Arab countries. You know, it's really important to integrate yourself in society. And similarly, you can still maintain your cultural heritage, but there's no reason that you can't, and you're not supposed to really be American, because and this is a country that's giving you bread and roof over your head. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, much more in the book. Uh, you'll have to check it out. Uh, the Bosnia List, a memoir of war, exile, and return. Kenan Trebinchevich has been my guest. He's the author, and he's coming to Utah. Two appearances as a part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Uh, that'll be happening next week. He'll discuss the Bosnia List and his experiences as a, re- as a refugee on Friday, October 3rd, 7 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library. Then on Saturday, October 4th at 3 p.m., we'll take part in a panel discussion. That's on Authors as Refugees and Refugees as Authors. It's presented by the Bosnian-American Professionals Association and Utah Humanities Council. That's also at the Salt Lake City Public Library. Uh, Kenan Trebinchevich, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mr. Williams. I'm, I'm excited. Looking forward to coming to Utah for the first time. Well, we'll be uh, glad to have you, and uh, hopefully you'll get out and do some hiking while you're here. I understand you've been yes, able I'm to. I'm definitely going to smell some fresh air. Yeah. And- yeah. I'm like uh, New York City here. Yeah. So. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for taking the time. Um, Thank and, you so much. Uh, coming up tomorrow, uh, we will uh, talk about um, uh, Deadly Wandering. It's a book by Matt Richtel. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, New York Times reporter. He talks about um, attention deficit. He talks about um, the, the problems of texting and driving. And uh, that's coming up. And he uses the case of the Cache Valley resident Reggie Shaw. We'll talk about that tomorrow on the program. Thanks for listening today.